Hello and welcome to episode 422 of the Crate and Crowbar. I'm the poorly reassembled fossil of Chris Thurston, and joining me on this auspicious evening is squelching graveyard cadaver Marge Davies. Hello! And a true revenant from the beyond, an eerie whisper of Alex Wiltshire. I am risen. Oh, he's quieter than ever. Will the noise cancellation finally catch him completely? Listen on to find out. None shall cancel me. (laughs) Don't say that, Alex. You're getting on. And we're all getting on as it happens. So as I've already said, or I believe I've said, I've already forgotten. um, Tonight is is the 19th of July, uh, 2023. Would you believe it? 10 years ago. On this very evening, uh, or day, uh, the 19th of July, 2013, we uh, launched CreightonCrowbar.com and posted our first ever episode of this podcast. That's the response that deserves. Stunned <laughs> <laughs> silence. Absolutely, like we didn't know this was happening. Um, yeah, uh, this is the 10th anniversary of the Creighton Crowbar. What a... What a fact that is <laughs> anyone got any feelings about this am i hung too much of a lampshade on it already what does it mean to you marsh oh <laughs> i tell you what That's i tell years. you what 10 years sigh. i i did actually did go back and try and look for um like predictions that we had made across mm. the course of the last 10 years um i didn't find any <laughs> <laughs> I spent an inordinate amount of time looking for us to say something insightful about the future of games. And we never do. <laughs> With one exception, actually, which, um, oh, yeah. to the credit of longtime listener and a wondrous wizard, Kane, uh, who found this uh, for me, thankfully. Um, in fact, can you guess who says um, that Minecraft will eventually be bought by Microsoft and incorporated into Windows. This is in episode 39 of the Crank Crowbar. So in 2014, that's how long ago it was. That feels like Graham to me. Yeah, it does. It's quite Graham-y. It was Pip! Huh! Pip was the only person to say something correct in the entire 10 years (laughs) that this podcast has been going on. Um, Who thinks... Uh, in fact, there was one other prediction that amused me. Um, you, Chris, in fact, said that uh, you might even see an esports tournament run at E3. It will be casters up on stage commenting a 15-minute match as part of the E3 conference. Uh, and then Tom uh, Francis asks, you, do you think there will ever be a PC conference at E3? And you say, no. <laughs> <laughs> well, I, was, I mean, to be fair, all of it was annihilated, wasn't it? So, yeah, yeah. <laughs> that's true. <laughs> your, your prediction came true eventually. <laughs> yeah. Um, yeah, no, that was, I mean, I've said some real bollocks of the years, haven't I? Let's be honest. That was also, that was also Kane's finding, I should hasten to add. When did I say that? Did I say that before I was even working in esports media? Because I'm not sure the me that worked in esports would have believed that five that was years episode ago. two. Oh. So, yeah, quite, quite. God, I was, I, was, ways. I was 25 years old. I knew nothing. <laughs> Did you guys have like a, a favorite game across the last 10 years? Can you pick something out as being the best game that re- was released during the duration of this podcast been going? Oh my God, Marsh. 
kind of questions that. I think I have an answer though, actually. Oh, suddenly popped into my head. I was, I was wondering if you were going to ask something like this. Um, like I kept thinking about things like um, I was thinking about oh these amazing things like um, the game I forgot the name of which was really really good, quite meaningful to me the one where you go into space wild um, outer wilds outer wilds yeah memorable games are just extraordinary mm. um, but then uh, I got back into say the spire and and that game just won't just go away from my head and it won't stop entertaining me. And it won't stop beating me and kind of, but once make me want to come back to it. And that, it just seems endlessly bottomless. And it could be. <laughs> it could, <laughs> yeah. I, I went there. Bottomfully end, endful. <laughs> <laughs> but like, is that a 10 year game? Could be. Could be. Because I think I mean, any, any 10 year game has to be bottomly endful. Yeah. I mean, could it be as, I mean, because 10 years is not forever. Um, contrary to what Guns N' Roses once said, it isn't. <laughs> um, so if you, if a game is truly bottomful, um, then presumably it would last 10 years and beyond. So the measure is the next 10 years of this podcast. Could be like Monopoly or something then. You're saying. <laughs> what, just that bad. <laughs> <laughs> I think those are both very good choices, actually, to be honest. Like, I've been thinking about this a bit, partly because I, I asked literally this question in our <laughs> private Discord. I don't want to give the game away here too much, <laughs> but all of that, oh, fainting and get the get the smelling salts, I haven't heard such a question before, was beautifully performed. But let's let's all be honest with each other, complete horseshit, because we've all been thinking about this for days. <laughs> <laughs> um, and um, the because there are obvious answers for me, right? Like games that were kind of epochal over the last decade that begin with a d and um i can't uh probably get away with recording any kind of reflection on the last 10 years of my life playing games without mentioning dota or destiny but those aren't the ones that jumped out to me actually um outer wild is another one for me like in the sense of in the previous time uh the time before 2013 that we might be talking about and someone was like i want to play a video game to understand what video games can be as entertainment a lot of the time, my answer to that was Portal or Portal 1 and Portal 2. Uh, it's not because they're necessarily the best games ever, but because it's like if you want to show somebody the the potential of a of a interactive space and have them be entertained and, and so on, I think it's a fairly safe bet. And actually, I would pick out a wild now. I think it's a little bit less um, obviously like a kind of entertaining performance than Portal, but it is such a great use of the medium. So that's up there for me as well. Um, the other one for me is Hunt. Showdown. Mm-hmm. Um, like when I really came, sort of came to think about it, taking the battle royale or or the you know the extraction shooter or whatever people want to call them now as one of those genres that we weren't talking about or thinking about at all ten years ago, um, I think it's the best one. I think it. I think it. You know, and I can talk about it. I mean, it's the thing I've been playing the most recently in terms of what I might even talk about later. So I'll probably return to it. But I think it stands up for me as. Even though I've never considered myself like a, an expert player of it, partly because um, it, it is possible to play hundreds of hours of a game and remain a miserable little shitty cowboy alone in the swamp. <laughs> um, but yeah, I think it's, it's you know, given it's a game I talked about, I think on the podcast years ago when I got the early access, the very early, early access version and didn't know quite what to make of it, the fact that... Um, I find it hard to fault in the most important aspects of its design 
uh, probably makes it stand up for me as one of the games of that period. A noble choice. I was also thinking of Hunt Showdown as a possible pick, but then I don't know. I I was also tempted by Disco Elysium, and I feel Ooh. like mm. it's, it's too. In some ways, it's like it's too easy, obvious of a pick because it's because it's a game that wrestles with a lot of big philosophies in a very overt way, and it kind of feels a, a little bit like I'm just going for a game with like a, a very high-minded in a textual way, which is divorced from the kind of experience of it as a game. It's not a very ludic game, or at least, it, I mean, it is, but it's not as ludic a choice as like uh, Slay the Spire or something like that, which is just pure, delicious mechanism. It's, it's just it's, lewd. Just lewd all the way. <laughs> <laughs> there's a lot, there's a, a lot of what is good about Disco Elysium is just, is just text. Um, so I feel like it's, I feel like a bit of a failure. Uh, picking it but i don't i don't think it's totally true like i i think a lot of what i admire about it is the design of its narrative choices and the way it's that structures that you're in a dialogue as like a conflict between what in other role-playing games would be your ability stats and how that sort of internality relates with the dialogue choices that are available to you and it it sort of it sort of supersedes of a lot of what you might think of as being like a sort of the, the game of dialogue that you get in other games like Mass Effect or whatever, where mm. you know, because here the choices that you're making aren't really about beating a conversation mini game and extracting what you want from it. They're more, much more about expressing your character uh, and all of its flaws in a way which is true to them. And to to find a way of doing that through like uh, interactive choices is um, is I think justifiably gamey um, to be able to pick it. Like, yeah, I think it's quite a lot of game in there. Like, you know, if there's game in the in the kind of like the the choices of 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 the kind of skill checks you're going to go for, you you can craft a character in a gamey kind of way. In a, your, your choices aren't purely about min maxing, but no, you know, right, they're about yeah. creating a character that you want, honing one, and and the choices you make don't end up being good either like i yeah. mean regardless of uh whether you pass a given skill check you might find that you're that by overemphasizing one part of your psyche you end up being backed into like these conversational cul-de-sacs where your only choices are to say awful things or things that are totally detrimental because yeah. you know one part of your brain has dominated another and you've sort of like pushed your character into this this pachinko machine of psycho-philosophical despair and you've bounced all the way down until you hit a box at the bottom labelled dickhead. Um, and I think that's... I that's now that's I podcasting. <laughs> we've, um, we've, we've talked a lot over the many, many years about sort of the, the, the qualities in games that, that allow you to fail in interesting ways, you know, that, that encourage you not to reload because you failed at something you thought mm. you wanted. And Disco Elysium really does embrace failure and and encourages you to kind of roll with all the terrible things that happen with you because it does because it always finds some sort of meaning within failure and that's 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 like a really amazing thing about it mm. was was bloodborne i was in, about in, to say bloodborne <laughs> yeah any of your lists yeah because Jamie yeah. was talking last week about how he uh, he returns to bloodborne as a sort of safe space <laughs> whoa <laughs> that guy yeah. And <laughs> no, I agree with him. <laughs> but I, I think there's a bunch of games that um, even if even if they aren't the games I put the most hours into, they're this, the, the games I would um, 
happily be buried in, <laughs> mm. uh, which, as we alluded to in our introduction, is now more of a pressing concern than it was when we started this podcast. Um, but things were like like uh, puzzle games, particularly like Manifold Garden and The Witness. Um, and even like w- once you get past the, the, the main storyline of it, games like Red Dead Redemption 2, which offer this sort of like pastoral infinity for you to to while away the rest of your life in in absolutely a a bottom full cowboy (laughs) experience (laughs) yeah Mm, i feel the same way about the hitman collection now that it's all bundled into one thing it's a kind of international holiday simulator you know Mm. like Mm. just as a series i think i've made that comment about it on the podcast many times before but that game is a you know i as a summation of what sort of triple a action games were in this period it's one of the better examples i think um i would put bloodborne at the top of that list though for me in terms of adventure experiences i suppose Hmm. there is a game that sort of so i actually went back to it maybe i'll I'll reveal what it is in a minute but i felt i definitely ought to be playing this game um uh, but i went back to it properly playing it with some friends um and having a really nice time and he's reminded me just how good it is um how sort of free and open but you know how kind of warm it is uh and it's also a game that's kind of been in the at least the periphery of my my life for uh 2014 to now so nearly you know coming up to 10 years um and that's minecraft and mm. um i think i think i think that definitely with for me it's it's definitely more significant to me than slay the spire um but because it's work because i work for for on minecraft uh it's kind of i can't really see it as a holiday like uh, Slay the spire might be but um but i think that it is it is is probably the decade game or one of the very top decade games the most most bottom four games speaking of i mean like to take the more personal angle on it then i think just to that's the other side to this, right? Like, I think my relationship with games has changed very substantially in that time, despite some patterns being quite similar. Like, I am someone who's always had their forever games that they tend to play a lot of, and that's become more acutely the case. But it's also in this period, even in the last six, seven years of that period, that I've gone over the fence completely from critic and journalist and magazine gremlin to narrative gremlin largely similar in many regards but i feel better about myself so um there is that as well and that's really changed the way that i uh encounter games now honestly like completely like it puts me uh far less than of a mind to play necessarily everything so much as to kind of um reclaim the the games that i do play a lot of more as entertainment even yeah. than i did um I feel the same. Yeah. when i was on the media side of things and felt more compelled to be in some ways more informed about a broader range of what was happening um you know it's it's sort of i'm almost like i think i've almost been like it was just sort of strange working in games and working on games now instead that i feel more compelled now to um think less deeply about the experiences that i'm having when i'm having them for fun or at the very least to kind of let those experiences sit for a bit before i try and analyze them and that's a big that's been a big change into how i play games from the years where i would spend necessarily feeling like i really did want to formulate pretty strong opinions about most things that were coming out um 
partly for the benefit of this podcast. So the the change that I describe is actively to the detriment of, of this podcast in um, happy birthday, I suppose. <laughs> um, but nonetheless, it has, it's been nice lately to play for the sake of playing, I guess, which has been kind of wasn't the case for a, for a few years in the middle back there, I think. And um, beyond the game side, I would always apologize for mentioning things like Destiny or Dota or something like that. Um, and yeah, and this year particularly, I find myself like, I'm kind of looking like, I mean, I appreciated the conversation from a few episodes ago about it, but I'm kind of looking forward to Starfield. It keeps creeping up on me, partly because, <laughs> partly because um, I, my brain has decided to like internally pronounce it Garfield, um, which has just broken it for me, but it's made the word Starfield not mean anything anymore. But the other is... Um, because it's like, I kind of, it occurred to me, the other kind of big thing is like, you know, Fallout, uh, sorry, Skyrim was, what, 12 years ago now? And that was a game I played a ton of up in the years preceding starting this podcast while I was a PC gamer in those first years I was there. And um, as anodyne as their world building appears to be, um, uh, there's part of me that's like, I'm quite excited to just play this, but with no preconceptions and just lose myself in this, um kind of melange whatever it is you know um and that's kind of exciting personally uh that and Baldur's Gate 3 I think are the things that have kind of got me excited to play more I suppose I I just I'm kind of enjoying you know I, I had the same experience as you Chris and um and I'm enjoying not having to have an opinion on stuff I've got bad news about what the rest of this podcast is going to entail <laughs> by the way <laughs> But it means that I, I've been able to go back to things. So long after it came out, I've been sort of sto- slowly going through the Hitman um, games. I mean, the second, like Hitman 2 sort of set at the moment, very steadily. I, Ratchet and Clank played that. Why? I don't know. It was there. I had a nice time. Nothing to say about it. <laughs> and and that, that's, that's deeply freeing. Love it. It was interesting. Way back... Um, when I was a journalist, I was always quite sort of vaguely surprised when uh, you talk to a developer and they'd be kind of ignorant about what's going on in, in the in the industry, like what games mm. are coming out, when, what the kind of the, the, the big discussion points of the day were. Um, and you said, like, Christ, you make games. Surely you must have, be aware that the thing you, where, where the thing that you're making fits into the overall, you know, art and and commerce of the, of the of, of, of video game um and now i know why because <laughs> they got to focus on the thing they're doing <laughs> and also uh it's a very just a it's quite a sort of very sliver of people like thin sliver of people that you know journalists it's that sort of journalist bubble that 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 they are on top of stuff and i think they are um you know, we were identifying the kind of the important stuff and discussing it in meaningful ways. Um, but now, now <laughs> but I don't no longer. do that. No, I don't do that. I am, um, yeah, um, I don't do that anymore and I, I, I don't miss it. And, uh, <laughs> and yeah, it's odd. Uh, we started in a graveyard and we ended in a graveyard. Um, the, I mean, I think, I mean, to put a final point, I think one thing that's kind of interesting looking back across the span of the decade um, is so I, I agree with you and I think that's been my experience as well of like not being as aware of discourse necessarily like I still read Twitter but you know God knows that's unreliable in terms of what it surfaces um, my observation is that that kind of 
kind of mass discursive practice or community doesn't exist in the way that it used to. Now that might yes. be completely false. Like it could be that it's moved, but my observation would be that it feels like it's, you know, there are just as there are more people making uh, commentary on games of one kind or another, whether that's videos or writing or podcasts, but it feels like it's siloed quite heavily, mm -hmm. either within the community around a particular genre or a particular game even, or uh, based on the medium or based on um, any other kind of subdivision of like almost like that era around 2013, 2014, 2015, there was a big blurring of lines um, as people started to you know, direct a lot more critical attention towards what were considered indie games at the moment that are just games, right? Like when you think about the big kind of epochal changes in that period, when was the last time you heard someone meaningfully use the word indie? Yeah. I, you know, I just don't think of it in those terms anymore because, you know, other subdivisions kind of exist now, whether that's like, is this an Annapurna style game or something like that, right? Mm -hmm. Like big indie, small indie, medium indie, like um, sort of lost their distinction. A lot of those sorts of patterns have resolved themselves. It's kind of interesting. Like um, I, I, I don't want to deny that it probably does still exist in, in places. I think it certainly does, but I feel like, it's not just that we have, I, you know, it's perhaps it is the children who have changed. No, what I mean is it's like, it's not simply that our relationships with games have changed and that's changed the kind of the way that we engage with them. I genuinely think that the, um, the era changed as well. Right. I mean, I, yeah, I, I agree, uh, completely. And, and would add that I also think that, um, I mean, this might be a point of kind of just getting older as well. But I'm also much more conscious. I think back in the, you know, we, so me and Marsh sort of entered game journalism in like 2007 or something. Um, it was 2007. Um, and, you know, I certainly grew up with, with kind of the, the old game magazines where big opinions were had and kind of, you know, tribes would, uh, would, would kind of rise around certain viewpoints, but there weren't very many, many of them. And it was all a big game. It felt like a big game where you'd kind of, I love this thing, this platform or this particular kind of big game yeah. or whatever. Um, these days, uh, and increasingly, um, I've just been more aware that it's it's not really a game, that, you know, there are real feelings. Um, you know, I'm conscious of the effort that people put into things that turn out badly. And a laughable, you know, would have been laughed at easily in a long time ago. Um, I think I've sort of, I think the world is a bit, not exclusively, but the the, the parts of the world that I kind of uh, respect and want to be associated with are more sensitive to all that stuff. It's not just a big fun game anymore, following games. It's um, it's it's more nuanced and richer and deeper and more human than than it ever was when when I was watching journalism, reading journalism, and then getting into it. Yeah, it, it does feel like it's not, you're not like the scamp slapping EA across the shins and running right. away, you know yeah. what I mean? Or like, you know, doing it. Yeah, like, reading that writer who's just really good at doing takedowns, you know, I just right. love it, you know. Yeah, I feel like, I mean, you know, not to like, I feel like that, to me, that started to die years ago with yeah. everything that happened online in the middle part of the last decade. Um mm. And the way it got online, the gaming community changed. Um, but also I agree that it's it's also a function of moving into game dev that like 
you know, there are games that I will certainly be critical about, probably on this podcast, but fucking hell is it. I'm just impressed anyone ships anything, frankly. Yeah. And you should get a prize for that. I, I had a real reminder of this lately, and I don't think this is any one person's fault, but there was um, PC Gamer, uh, that old place to which we share a connection, uh, did, I think, a very funny tweet. Um, and I think because of the, like, I think the kind of brand or editorial voice dissolving power of the internet, which robs everything of its context and its joy, this was passed around as if it were real for a long time. So the tweet was about Diablo 4. And to, to, to quote, the tweet was, Diablo 4's Helltide events now let you earn rare uniques from tortured gift chests. Rumor has it that future patches will let you foment pain shards by transmorphing wound imps into malfeasance tokens instead of having to distress your own affliction coins. Now, that's a very funny piece of writing. That's like very like old school. Like that's kind of my memory of the PC gamer sense of humor, right? Like it's, it, cuts, it cuts very close to the bone so much so you can't tell it's parody, but it is parody. And um, there's a very funny screenshot taken from the opening cutscenes of a, a sort of, you know, rhyme-bitten villager from a shithole in Diablo 4 knifing someone with a big smile on their face. <laughs> and I saw that everywhere on Twitter for about a week of people go either making fun of Diablo or making fun of PC Gamer, nobody getting that it was a joke. <laughs> and and it, part of me was like, ah, oh, yeah, that's kind of the difference, isn't it? Like, we're in the, the you know... That's the, the the sort of the specific understanding of the editorial voice of the outlet or the team you like um, is the context that is stripped in the content digestive system we've we suckle we suckle from. You know what I mean? Yeah. Like, and so uh, that was an awful analogy, and <laughs> I won't apologize for it. You're not getting you're not getting any better. I've had most of my gin, um, and um, that was like that was a bit of a marker as well. Of like, oh yeah, times times they do change, don't they? Hmm? Yep, context collapse has has definitely occurred. It's not like the old days where you had your know, your magazines and you knew your audience pretty well. Yeah, is there a good thing that's happened? He he declared. Marsh, I'm going to pick the wrong person for this. Marsh. Oh, no. <laughs> <laughs> um, <laughs> shit. <laughs> um, I think we've realised that the metaverse is a lot of shit, right? Yeah, and that that yeah. is a good thing. <laughs> <laughs> I I did, and I anecdotally have this experience um, last week. So I've been to every develop the the industry conference in the UK down in Brighton. I've been to every one of them since it reopened after COVID, and um, going to develop from a biz dev point of view, from a recruitment point of view, is always quite you know, it's quite a lot of good reason. It's always very in, packed and kind of engaged, lots of engaged people, particularly good for meeting like graduates and people looking for a bit of guidance at the start of their career. That's all very worthwhile. But there's always a a band, not a band, like as in like a musical band, like there's always like a, there's like a strata of like occasional biz dev weirdo you got to encounter. <laughs> and it has evolved in every develop that I've done, even in the space of three years. A couple of years ago, Metaverse. Last year, NFTs and Web3. This year, AI. But the mm. crucial thing is, in every year, the previous generation's weirdos have just gone. Like, they've just been removed from the encounter table. So it was kind of <laughs> amusing to see. It's not the same that's... weirdos then, evolving year and No, year. not that I can tell. Not that I can tell. I think there's some, there's some overlap, but, you know, it tends to be... Um, 
last year someone gave me a business card that was just uh, several business cards and they were all just different fo- stock photos of women and then on one side of it it said web3 and the other side was an email address what did it mean <laughs> what did it mean don't know surely you found out when you immediately got home and typed an email <laughs> to that very address <laughs> i mean, I mean I, yeah there are, there are good things, good things. I, I've thought of a good thing, and that is mm. that games in general have diversified a huge amount in terms of the content and yeah. type of game. Like, I mean, people, we've we've evolved as an industry to the point where people now roll their eyes at the idea of cozy games. I mean, the fact that people are bored of that <laughs> as a as, you know a substrate <laughs> of games is amazing. Um. <laughs> Here's my positive," said Marsh. "An uptick in scorn. <laughs> I've sent it. In, I've sensed it in my spleen. <laughs> I'll survive another winter. Mm, delicious. <laughs> but the fact that people can be scornful of new things is is itself a great, <laughs> a great achievement. <laughs> I mean, so what you're saying is we've we've achieved uh, a sufficient diversity of experience that um, a kind of uh, a healthy cynicism can now spread omnidirectionally rather than just towards the worst offenders, <laughs> even even touching completely undeserving folk. <laughs> Fantastic. Um, I just think there are probably, uh, there are more better games now of a bride, wide variety of types and more acceptance of diversity of games than there has ever been, right? Like, so many arguments are just simply gone around what f- graphical fidelity represents in a yes. new game or yeah, what budget represents. Like those things were tiresome arguments a decade ago. They're just basically mm. gone. You have something like, you know, um, can you imagine like, I, I don't think I've ever heard a sniff of somebody leveling a, oh, but it doesn't look amazing argument at like vampire survivors or even like Among Us or something. Like right, these yeah. things can just become phenomena because they deserve to be on their own merits. And that's, not just accepted by like a narrow circle of, um, you know, dickheads um, who were trying to sound like they've got one over edge. Um, Where are the <laughs> the people who railed against walking simulators now? I mean, right? Surely, right. I mean, <laughs> put a microphone in front of them and see if they've changed their minds. Because surely, surely they have. Right, or or they haven't, and we don't hear them anymore. Right, yeah. like it's it's just accepted that games can be a wide variety of things, and I think that's the. I think that's the that's the 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 best outcome, right? Just a acceptance that games can be a wide variety of things now, and that financial success or audience success can flock towards games, regardless of um, some sort of expectation set by marketing around sort of mm-hmm. like tech hype or something like that. And particularly, and I will say this um, as someone who kind of tries to bear in mind the needs of like a, a younger audience as well. A lot of that's not just kind of embodied in like online games communities, but just simply in like how a new generation is consuming games. And I think that's really heartening that yeah. they are, you know, given that it's such a difficult form of entertainment to pin down in terms of what the fuck it is, um, whether it's very Ludo or not very Ludo at all and everything in between. Yeah. Um, um, you know, the fact that it can be embraced as simply like entertaining thing you do with your computer is, uh, that's good. That is a good thing. And I'm not going to keep talking to the point where I feel the need to caveat that. 
I think there is a sort of a quite an interesting sophistication about the way that some games, and I think all digital media is kind of enjoyed and, and understood. Like, like, like what, what you said about uh, Vampire Survivors, you know, you look at um, Among Us and things as well, these huge, 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 huge games, which um, where their design is entirely appropriate to what they set out to do. And that so many people immediately understand that, you know, they're not coming to it with kind of sort of alien uh, kind of, you know, sort of expectations set by unreasonable things. Like I think, you know, in the past, I think games, as you were saying, sort of, you know, the idea that sort of fidelity was everything was, you know, or like everything had to be 3D, you know, these different waves of kind of expectation that, that came about in the past. There's this sort of enjoyment of the the creative decisions uh, made by, play, by by game makers. And I think everyone's a bit more playful around, around with that stuff, which I've enjoyed. Like Vampire Survivors, I think, is a perfect example. You know, there it is so playful with all the things that it's going for. You know, its relationship with Castlevania and sort of 8-bit, 16-bit games, but, you know, but all the other things it's going for as well. And the fact that it's meant to run on kind of in browsers and on phones and this sort of thing you know like the sort of as a as a thing of technical and uh communicative kind of media it's i think it's really interesting and the audience kind of laps it up that's mm. cool nice isn't it weird though that there's still not like i mean the new york times doesn't have a dedicated video games section still yeah and as far as i know the bbc doesn't really cover video games in any in any substantial way in the same way that it would big movie launches or anything like that um there's still a kind of there's still that kind of lack of literacy in a certain strata of our society which produces a lot of culture um yeah i mean is it not also an overlap with a sort of like an aging population to some yeah. extent, right? Mm-hmm. That like to the same extent that, you know, the BBC or the New York Times have not been forced to adjust to the needs of a younger audience because the older audience is still there yeah. and the younger audience is not reading the New York Times, you know, or looking at the BBC. I think that they've they've looked, they've either made experiments like, was it Washington Post that did have a video game sort of uh, department and then mm. closed it recently? So there have been experiments like that, and I'm sure the other publications, August or publications, have looked at those and seen them as failures and decided not to go down the same way. I mean, I don't know why for them they were failures. I mean, I certainly think that that games have been are covered very well elsewhere. Um, you know, would I ever go to the Washington Post? Even if it didn't have a paywall, would I ever go there to get my games fixed? Probably not. I think it's an interesting one because I, I would also contrast it with their coverage of pop culture generally. Like, mm. you know, uh, it's not to say that games are exclusively pop culture, but that is largely where they live. And I think, you know, I think the model of applying traditional journalistic practice to games has produced some really, really good stuff. It absolutely has. But it's it's kind of often an odd fit. Like the thing I associate it with is sort of like quite worthy and often worthwhile deep dives into the artistry of a certain game or the history of a certain creator. And that stuff can be worthwhile, but it's not necessarily what sells games as 
pop art to people, right? Like yeah. more often than not, these are pretty colorful, lurid experiences of one kind or another, arguably kind of like the sort of um, the most lurid entertainment form that exists. And that is not a thing to be embarrassed about. That's a quality that games have, um, you know, to the extent that pop art generally should be like surfacing and making accessible uh, a wide range of experiences, but also within a kind of exciting parcel games do that really well, but it's often traditionally not something that, you know, um, so traditional media or like broadsheet media or something is comfortable talking about in its own terms. They're not, they don't talk about action films this way, right? Like they, you know, will very rarely, um, something has to be taken as a kind of, uh, high culture artifact of some kind in order to receive that treatment. And so I, I, what I'm saying, I suppose, is that I would take the absence of that, that kind of like, um, broad coverage of games less as, well, I think it's partly generational. I think it's partly that games are resistant to the, dare I say it, like high culture posturing of traditional media generally. Yeah. And attempts to do that are too often a apologia. I definitely think that sort of reading certain papers' coverage of of games it reads completely differently to all their other coverage. Um, and I don't, I don't know whether it's just because it has, they have to be written in the way that I I'm familiar with them. I mean, it reads, they read like, you know, game websites, <laughs> like specific, you know, yeah. that, that only write about games and they don't have that sort of breadth of voice. I don't know if it's a sort of sense of self-confidence. I don't know what it is that I get from the film pages and things. But I don't know. Yeah, I mean, I will say that, though, but, like, yeah, I do. But also, like, I feel like, I mean, I, I think almost every, we just talk about criticism. I appreciate we've been talking about this for, like, a full 45 minutes now. But, like, just talk about criticism. Like, I find that almost every branch of criticism is weird in its own way, right? Mm, like, true. film criticism is deeply strange, often highly idiosyncratic, often wildly, you know, you know, kind of derived from, Partly because I think this is a complete kind of back pocket take um, by which I'm pulling it bottomfully from behind. Um, but like, you know, I sometimes get the feeling with film criticism that like it often feels like outlets reviewing you know, movies have kind of given up on the idea that they're serving a specific need for a specific audience and are more a kind of just pitching a take into a, a kind of sea of aggregated discourse um, for the entertainment value, which is not incorrect. But often you just get kind of wildly sort of disconnected kind of rambles or columns, basically, that are sort of loosely connected to a movie and they're stapled to a particular broadsheet because yes. they know that um, their audience is not actually going to go and see, I don't know, um, the new Mission Impossible film or something like that. So they might as well just write like a, a 400 word piece about like trains or something. And then, you know, a meditation on whether Tom Cruise is actually old or not, because that's a subject of relevance <laughs> to the audience, and then go back to sleep. I was looking at um, uh, Slate's sort of cultural output recently, and it's very much kind of geared towards, I mean, uh, maybe this isn't anything to do with the evolution of games. This is more to do with the evolution of, uh, of, of criticism as it is um, 
refracted through an internet that requires uh, hits and uh, the, the entire mechanism of generating those hits. So everything is is it doesn't seem to do uh, like reviews anymore. Everything is about um, finding, as as Chris was describing, like the hook into something, like the trains in terms of Mission Impossible. But it's like you know, uh, Oppenheimer is a mind blowing movie, but how is it a history? And Christopher Nolan is for the girlies, an opinion piece. It's, they're all kind of like micro opinions that that are, are that bounce off a particular cultural moment rather than any kind of form of criticism. And I wonder if just the the entire industry that's now dedicated towards producing that kind of um, chicken feed has has meant that we uh, we don't see. It's true of games as well. Like we we just don't talk about any kind of media in the same way that we used to. Maybe another factor here is that films, um, beyond some kind of like big shifts around things like the cinematic universe that have kind of dominated things for the last couple of years, broadly speaking, haven't significantly changed in what a film is for decades. Certainly, you know, generational span of time, right? In terms of what it means to go to the city. Obviously there's, there are major reflections like streaming and so on, but in terms of what a film is, it's fairly understood. And it's, there's a, there's a, a lot of trust that that understanding can kind of echo up and down uh, the audience, right? For, you know, you understand that a film is like a 90 minute to f- forever experience um, with, um, you know, star actors, a story and so on. And that's kind of the form it takes. Games are far more diverse than that. And so I suppose my point is, there's potentially the point that like games will always be hard to reduce in the way that we're talking about because shared understanding or a shared kind of baseline from which to kind of relate to the audience is really not forthcoming. At genre level, you can do, right? You're talking about shooters or open world games or something like that, you can. But, you know, um, as games diversify in the way that we've said, and as the audience diversifies, it gets harder and harder to be like, oh, have you played the latest game? because it means so many different things, Mm. right? It could mean the latest kind of engagement farm mobile game. It could be the late, it could be Oxen Free 2. It could be the latest blockbuster AAA thing. And the differences between those experiences and the differences in how those experiences are accessed are so diverse and so broad that actually game as a concept (laughs) is harder to pin down and therefore harder to kind of turn into chicken feed in that particular way which is to say that we should still after 10 years be having tiresome arguments about what games are (laughs) (laughs) can i just read you this headline from slate's culture feed yeah forget ken the hot boy of summer is dot 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 napoleon bonaparte (laughs) (laughs) for fuck's sake and i am clicking on that so I'll read that later. <laughs> <laughs> They've won. Uh. Well, we've we've talked uh, at length about the diversification of games. Shall I talk to you about a game in which a uh, drunken, washed-out male protagonist who is now bald uh, shoots a lot of people from a uh, developing country? I guess. <laughs> For all time's sake, yeah. let's do it. Uh, yeah, I went back to Max Payne 3 f- for, oh wow! Wow! Um, I just <laughs> somebody's I just... maximally remedy pilled. <laughs> well, it's actually Rockstar pilled because uh, oh yeah, it wasn't. Made by oh yeah, one. and yeah. Uh, I just replayed uh, La Noire um, for similarly unfathomable reasons. Wow. Um, What's going on, Marsh? Yeah, well, are you okay? 
<laughs> well, no, I mean, maybe it's to do with uh, what uh, Alex was saying earlier, where we have this huge backlog of games and we're not necessarily under pressure to generate uh, takes and uh, follow trends. And so uh, I, I felt free to return to the catalog of yesteryear. Um, and Ellie Noir was a very instructional uh, uh, playthrough, actually, because it, it does a lot of um, incredibly ill-advised things in terms of narrative de- design. Um, <laughs> so it was it was fun to, to go through it again. And I think overall, the story that it tells is actually uh, uh, really good and um, uh, not well told at all, all, all points, but the kind of bones of it are, 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 are a great noir story. Um, mm-hmm with interesting characters who go on interesting arcs um not always expressed uh in the best possible way but i did enjoy going back to it max Payne 3 on the other hand is is a such a a, a thing of its time in a way uh, which f- few games are once you make games are much more easy to pinpoint i think than other kind of medium because of the, the trend in graphical fidelity although now as you were saying earlier like games can come out with any kind of number of polys and nobody bats an eyelid. So maybe that's not really as easy a dipstick. <laughs> I don't know what that is. You use a dipstick to measure time? <laughs> yes. Mostly, yeah. Uh, one of the major uh, time measures. What time is it, Alex? <laughs> three on the dipstick. <laughs> but it's a really weird collision of that that sort of 30 seconds of fun, physics-y bullet time combat that you know is the hallmark of max Payne, and then that's kind of really weirdly meshed with rockstar's cinematic aspirations because you're constantly being yanked out of control of the game by cutscenes. uh like every literally every 30 seconds you shoot a bunch of guys and then suddenly oh okay i don't get to pick up that gun that i need uh instead i have this cutscene, and it's uh, it's interesting because they're you know uh, they're not as expressive um the characters simply just aren't able to wear enough expressions to be able to bear the kind of dramatic weight being put on them um (laughs) but like it's 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 characterized the aesthetic of it's characterized in a way which was obviously very zeitgeisty at the time and it's such an interesting thing to do that because it's it's such a double-edged sword, you know, because you you crest that zeitgeist at the perfect moment. You can maximize your success uh, in the in like the six-month window in which your game is released, but then you look exponentially more lame <laughs> thereafter. <laughs> um, what what is its feel? I I remember uh, a flowery shirt. What else? What else was going on with that game? I well, I mean, its tone. I was going to compare it actually, and this isn't—it isn't similar to this in its aesthetic, but it just reminded me of the this, like the taste you get with the that the Marvel opening cinematic of Secret Invasion, uh, mm. where it's it's been um, partly you know partly used with uh, AI to construct, and aside from being like really tone deaf to the complaints of artists and animators and actors and writers, and, like whoever else is on that picket line, it just pinpoints that that aesthetic of like early mid journey to uh, a month in 2022 where that kind of mm-hmm. digi slurry of half recognizable shapes was like momentarily startling and a new thing and now nobody likes it because uh, everybody who hates ai hates it and all the evangelists of it also hate it because it looks like an inferior version of the thing they're now hawking um but <laughs> anyway uh, get back to max Payne. it's 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 um it's sort of so it's very tony scott is I think its mm. main touchstone. Mm. Um, 
it's it has this thing where it's constantly um using this flickering dilating double exposure thing with like scan lines and then um, ah yeah like the kane and lynch era of yeah like, but like, it's like a kane and lynch oh that was that is still special though kane lynch 2 isn't it too i think too I can't remember which kind of literature was that did the the handheld the video, video thing. thing. Yeah, but that like that was consistent in I think the framing of it. Whereas here, the, yeah. it's all about constantly disrupting the framing. So like, not only do you get this kind of weird juddering uh, effect overlaid onto the the three uh, D scene you're looking at, but like text will be overlaid on it whenever somebody says something important. Or, or often just the nouns <laughs> of what they're saying. Like, you know, Max will, Max will have a voiceover saying, Rodrigo made money. There was a lot of it and it was dirty as hell. And the word money, dirty, will flash up on the screen. It'll be kind of like cleverly inserted into some part of the 3D geometry. And like, uh, I guess... I guess that was cool <laughs> at some point. <laughs> but no, I, I, that was cool at some point because that kind of non-diegetic use of 3D space was very novel. That like wasn't a thing that could easily be done previously. And so it was exciting to see it. And now it's very annoying. <laughs> uh, and there's also kind of like, it's set in Sao Paulo. And so, uh, you know, it has the... Uh, the Hollywood agreed um, level of sepia <laughs> and uh, it's sort of hyper-violent tourism, uh, which was also beloved at a particular time. Mm. Um, so it has a lot of kind of that cavalier, masculine aura of uh, particularly uh, Tony Scott films of the time. Did I say Ridley Scott earlier or did I say Tony No, Scott? you said Tony. Oh, good. Um, it does have a good soundtrack, though. Health soundtrack is, is mm. still great, but maybe that's... You know, maybe that's because I'm 40 years old and I still listen to Massive Attack. (laughs) (laughs) That's all I have to say about it, though, because I haven't played very much of it. But it's um, it's a remarkable use of the time dipstick. Very precise. (laughs) Max Payne, time dipstick. He slows down time. (laughs) It's true. He does. (laughs) He makes time oily. He does. (laughs) He plumbs the depths of time, withdraws it, looks at it and goes, yeah, you're going to have to strip the whole thing out. <laughs> the bottom full plumb bob of time. What the fuck are we talking about? What am I talking about? Tell me about a new game instead. Uh, I've got a new game. All right. It's not that new game. It's quite a oh. new game. Um, Mr. Sun's Hatbox. Beg your pardon? <laughs> it's a lovely game. Um, tell me, uh, do you like, do you like Spelunky? Yeah. Do you like Fultoning stuff in Metal Gear? Yes. Do you like uh, Rogue Legacy and games where you have characters with terrible, terrible things that they do, you know, attributes that you have to kind of deal with? Sure. Yeah. (laughs) Then I can recommend to you (laughs) Mr. Sun's hat box. Um, uh, it is a, it's a, like a sort of, um, it, obviously it's a, it's a roguelike sort of affair. Um, the story is, uh, uh, is very slight. Um, you are Mr. Sun uh, and you have wanted, a, you've sent away for a hat to be delivered to you. Um, but just as the Amazon-like uh, deliverer uh, arrives at your doorstep, um, the, the nefarious Mr. Moon and his goons steal the hat box and run away with it. Uh, 
the Amazon deliverer says, oh no, I'll get you back your, um, your hat box. Just stay there. And Mr. Sun is just left there going, oh, it's, it's okay, don't worry. But, but uh, the Amazon deliverer has uh, got himself anyway. Uh, this spurs the, um, the Amazon deliverer to develop a huge uh, like military base under um, Mr. Sun's uh, base, uh, house. And because uh, it, it also is a bit like um, XCOM where you set up uh, like different rooms you know, in, in that kind mm. of, you know, your base I mean, each of the rooms has a different function. Um, and in here, you are recruiting people that you Fulton out of memory uh, levels uh, so that you can use them as a character that you go into levels with. And if, if they die, they permanently die. Uh, and it is a Splunky-like, extremely um, a sort of what, systemic sort of platformer where one thing often leads to another and it's got a much more chaotic much more chaotic than um than uh than than um spelunky which can get kind of quite chaotic at times of course but this is batshit most of the time um and your characters that you fold them out and then use all have terrible proclivities uh <laughs> such as um uh fainting whenever you kill someone <laughs> and it just it, it, in with kind of uh, Tom France, Francis style kind of timing, you know, Tom's kind of sort of uh, slapstick sort of when people fall over, they're straight on the floor kind of t- mm. sort of comedy timing. You just fall to the floor for about a second every time you kill somebody and you kill a lot of people. And so you're always falling to the floor. There's one that's sort of just got lazy eyes and just keeps blinking all the way through. So you can't see anything for sort of a little while. Um, there's one that can't hear anything. So you just, there's no sound. Um, um, you get grow to love these things <laughs> just because they just sort of throw even more chaos into the mix. Um, and if you can get them through missions, um, uh, which sort of uh, the mission's a bit like, you know, sometimes you have to kill a particular character, a particular sort of NPC sort of little guy in an area um sometimes you have to fulton out a little guy in the area sometimes you have to get a, an item uh from an area because you can fulton anything you like out of a level hats guns um weapons in general uh and other characters um once you get a character back to your base um you have to to uh, mind control them so that's a room that you have to build and set them out in uh so you sort of it takes a couple of of, of kind of level playing through levels to, to 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 get them on your side and they're just in a roster after that point with all of their problems laid bare <laughs> it's a it's a really funny game it's a very very funny game and it would be frustrating because of the, that chaotic element but it's just it has a real uh scent it's 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 slapstick it's brilliantly slapstick um you know and, Weapons are kind of, you know, you if you pick up a gun, it'll have three, like I think it's got two or three shots in like a handgun style thing and you will probably miss. And um, once you've done all the, 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 the you know, you've shot through all your, of the, of the ammunition, you can just throw it at somebody and that will do as good as, as, as um, killing them. You can knock people out, but then they will get up quite quickly afterwards. Um, there's a sort of certain level of... Um, uh ai to them so that they'll kind of search for you if you've um if you've kind of got their attention you can somewhat stealth you can jump behind people and and not be seen and kind of try and get past them that way that will go wrong um uh 
But there's kind of quite a lot of depth where a lot of the buildings and the things that you want the buildings to be doing for you, um, a lot of items that you want to, to craft and things, require you to go into levels and find certain uh, like weapons or hats of certain types. Um, uh, uh, oh, just a quick note on the hats. Uh, the hats will give you other abilities, like a hard, so one of those yellow sort of construction hard hats will allow, if, you, if something jumps on your head, you won't be knocked out. Um, there's one that has a spring in it and it causes anything jumping on it to bounce high in the air. Uh, you know, it, it's, it's that kind of game. Uh, uh, yeah, you'll be going into levels with a specific aim in mind as well as the mission. You know, the missions might be, you know, as I said, to, to kill a certain character or whatever, to, to succeed at it, and then you've got to escape. Um, you'll also be trying to find certain items so you can progress to other things going on in your base. So it has a really nice kind of crunchy, well, crunchy isn't the word, that really sort of flowing feel of kind of like, oh, I'll play another level just so I can, just in case I find that hat and I can progress that particular project and that kind of thing. It's really good. It's um, it's also by Kenny Sun. He uh, he did um, way back um, Circa Infinity, which was this sort of incredibly... It's like a platformer, but it was all, you know, with these concentric lines and circles and colors, sort of patterns coming out. And it was quite sort of uh, head fucky. Um, Twinfold was a really cool uh, take on threes that he made, which I was really into. Mm. Um, really nice little characters. He's made lots of really interesting games. There's nothing quite like Mr. Sun's Hatbox. Um, and I really recommend it. It's good. It's a good, fun game from this year. Excellent. That sounds great. Is that on Steam, Alex? It's on a Steam, yeah. It's mm. on Switch as well. Oh, marvellous. Shall I talk about a thing that I've been playing very Ooh. briefly? Because I feel like um, the things I've been playing lately do not necessarily lend themselves to fresh new takes um, because they've been quite well trodden over. So in the case of... Um, I was listening to everybody else's takes on Diablo 4, which everyone's been playing, obviously, and I agree 100%. So I don't have much to add there in terms of its incredible how fine a game can be you know um just how a hundred percent sure it is um defiantly okay um i've i have i guess three observa three funny moments and a take for you that's really what i've got to be honest to yield from my many hours of this game so far um one is I was very tickled. I was playing the other day and I got a quest reward at the end of helping some, you know, shitty little villager through a shitty situation of their own making where they had, you know, I don't know, uh, gone to the woods once and now they have to be exploded, which is all the stories in that game. <laughs> and um, I opened the little fucking matchbox they give you at the end of it and it exploded and there on the ground was and this is the name of the item an awful medal just <laughs> an awful medal and i felt like in that moment the game completely commented on itself it's like that's what i do get that's what i get for everything in this game i perform an awful task which is fun to do and i get an awful message awful medal so i enjoyed that um i am I'm playing a lot of this game and then um, I recently uh, had an event where another, play, another player and I were rushing through the wilderness when suddenly it popped up that I had to meet. I had 53 seconds left if I was to slay the claustrophobic skeleton. 
And I actually think this might be a pre-written bit rather than a fun moment of randomization, but I just find the notion of a claustrophobic skeleton very funny. <laughs> Is that just a person with anxiety? Possibly. Um, Did you, you know? Uh, oh, yeah. Oh, yeah. Handily in time. And then finally, in terms of my fun moments in Diablo, I had a good one today. I was playing it on lunch um, while listening to the podcast about it to make sure that I didn't have anything to add because I truly don't. And... Um, and I did one of the public events or like the open world events where somebody is, uh, I'd done it once before. And it's the one where somebody is trapped under their caravan. And if you go and talk to them, they will either turn out to be a tricky little dickhead who's summoning their bandit friends or genuinely in need. And it changes the nature of the event that follows. In this case, genuinely in need because of spiders. And, um, and I clicked on them and then the mission pops up, which is like, you know, you've got to, fend off waves of spiders and you get the bonus reward if they don't die makes sense cool then i've done that once before with one of them and then in this case there were two caravans and each caravan had one person trapped under it and they were kind of facing each other and that was quite fun for its own sake like what are the chances it happened to both of us um and anyway so i protected them from that and did that successfully but after that event was concluded my inventory was completely full so I portaled out, went back to Kyovashad, the kind of big capital city, uh, salvaged all of the gear that I didn't need for bits, um, stuffed all of the gems in my stash, and popped back through my town portal scroll, only to come back to the same event having spawned again. Hmm. So I popped back out, and now there were three carriages with three people trapped underneath it, and I just triggered it again and did it again. And... It did feel like the kind of like I've don't I've I've just I've what did you have you learned nothing? Have you learned nothing? Like I've I, I just helped you with this. You could have left and you've actually got someone else <laughs> stuck here as well. Like I'm not always gonna be popping back forth through this magic portal. And then I went back and tried it again after that, but after that they were they were simply gone, replaced Aww. by ghosts. It was quite fun though. So those are the three times I've been like above average amused by Diablo so far. Like I don't <laughs> I don't hate it. I just but I was thinking about it and I was trying to figure it out because I think it is a really fascinating study and a very well-crafted game, which has many qualities, but that is co- like so okay that it's quite hard to articulate exactly why. And I think I figured it out for myself at least. So I wanted to offer this as a kind of addendum to the takes on Diablo. Hmm. I think it is really interesting that, and I think all of the elements of this are in that conversation, but for me, it's a particular combination of things. So, This is a game about fighting monsters, but in almost all circumstances, you can't see the monsters. You can't see them. Like literally, like you're fighting a swarm of bees, which I know is a Diablo tradition, and an indistinct ghoul on a muddy background. So you can't really see them. But also, and that would be like a critical flaw in most games, but also that doesn't matter at all. And I think it's in the tension between those two things. I can't see... And it doesn't matter that the on we arrives, <laughs> right? Because so like my play style is to go, I'm a necromancer and it's to go into a region. I hit the first person. That means the first person spawns a corpse at their feet, which is very funny. Um, I then press a button on the corpse, which means the corpse pulls all nearby monsters towards it. And then I right click on them and they all die. And this is almost always works. And at the moment I they get pulled together, they pop up as a purple health bar because I've made them vulnerable. And that's that's it. The, that's the entire loop. And so all of my focus is on purple health bar, click, not purple health bar, 
wait for purple health bar click. And so I become, it, even though like it should be an issue, the enemy visibility is so poor given when compared to other elements of the UI and experience, it isn't because the mm. gameplay is forgiving enough and UI driven enough to, to pull me out of it. And I think it's those two things that keep you in this su- suspended state between immersion and like, if it got to the point where the, um, the visual style collapsed your ability to play, then I think you would say that the immersive cost was too great of it being dark, but because it doesn't matter, it kind of prevents you from complaining about it. And that kind of keeps you in this tension. That's my feeling about it. Right. Like where it's like, if it, you know, where it's actually really simple, it's like, I spend a lot of this game. And if you asked me like what any given character on the screen was doing, I wouldn't be able to tell you. And most of the time that's a bit of a fail state for UX in games, right? Like I just cannot see anything, but in Diablo, it doesn't matter because it's sufficiently UI driven that it keeps you above that. I don't know. I'm not sure if that's resonant to your experience much, but um, yes, it is. But I don't think that necessarily, um, exculpates it. <laughs> oh no, it doesn't. Like, I mean, I, I, I think it could almost be completely abstracted to being a, a UI game. Like I, like you say, like you, you, you're playing with one other person even, and certainly if you're playing with two other people, any combat you get into is instantly incoherent to the point that it literally doesn't matter what's happening on screen. You're just looking at the buttons at the bottom and clicking them in the order that you know you have to click on them. I think that just le- led in almost entirely to my disengagement with what was going on. I, so I, am I, I mean, I did play quite a bit of Di- Diablo 3. Diablo 3 wasn't like that. No, right? Diablo 4 is a lot darker. Like, yeah. I mean, and when I mean that, I, mean, I don't mean like in a high flute way, it's just very dark. Oh, sure, sure, sure. And, but like, and, you know, aside from but aside from the fact that you could see in Diablo three, I didn't spend time looking at the the UI. Like I was kind of felt I was dodging around and making choices and things. I, you know, yeah, yeah I'm just saying there's none of I, that. I, mean, but... I might be might be just misremembering that. Well, from what I understand, uh, from what Tom was saying, uh, as a, a a greater Diablo expert than myself, Diablo three was something of an aberration within the Diablo series in that actually the, the skill sets you uh, you assembled had more synergies that you had to think about and enact consciously. Yeah. Whereas Diablo 4 um, moves your choices largely away from what you're doing in the moment to what items you will equip in order to get stat boosts so all of the decisions that you've made that really affect combat occur when you're equipping uh Mm. your character okay actually moment to moment there's not a lot going on in its little brain Mm. yeah i think it's it's an interesting one because i don't want to go too deep in it because i do want to talk about intentional darkness in games and like because i find it really interesting right as a thing where it looks it looks amazing sort of and i think it's it's interesting to me that the, the kind of the decisions are all sensible ones, but they clash quite as, as much as they do to the extent that, that um, yeah, I find it interesting from a decision-making process, from a design decision-making process that the relative passivity of its combat system, the fact that it doesn't hugely matter what you do allows it to be very difficult to read. Otherwise the issues of it being very difficult to read would have come up more in playtesting yeah. if it was asking yeah. more of you and that's why i find it interesting like that that allows what i think is fairly like a fairly skew if design 
or certainly a little bit of an incoherent one to to work because the systems enable each other, but they hold each other at this kind of like unsteady kind of middle space between either being committed to one thing or the other thing. Particularly because I think just think the weighting of effects is really weird. Like so as I say, like playing an Necromancer, I have a ton of minions in the summons. Um skeletons, my own skeletons are massive and glow bright blue from the inside. And so they're much more visible than any enemy. And just if you were to sit down and go like, what do I need to be more aware of? Enemies or my own minions? And obviously I need to be somewhat aware of my minions, but I don't control them directly. So it's okay if they're more like a kind of ambient effect that's running around and doing things. It's really interesting that they're weighted the other way around. And it's a lot of small things like that where it's like, actually this feels like it should be the opposite, right? Like I should be mostly aware of my minions and very aware of enemies. It's completely the opposite. Um, but yeah, I think I it's... those design choices came first. Cause I, I, I agree with you. There's probably some, I mean, there's obviously been in development for a long time. So the, the balance of readability versus to what extent the game relies on uh, play exclusively through the UI. Like I wonder which one of those decisions ended up first and which one they were mitigating for through the creation of the other. Right. Yeah. I, I almost wonder if they, the way the systems are set up makes them resistant to quality assurance is interesting because they, because they ameliorate each other. Right. Mm-hmm. Where in that argument, both decisions could have been made in parallel and simply not be called out as an issue because they kind of work. You know, it's the, it's the issue of the thing that can kind of limp along because it doesn't break. Mm. Right. Um, and I find that, I just find that very interesting because I mean, it's very enjoyable in its own, on its own merits a lot of the time, but I was trying to get to the bottom of why exactly it felt quite empty in the way that it did to me. And I think it is, you know, the lack of connection that comes from simply not paying attention to sort of moment by moment action in that way. Cause also I will say, I don't feel like I'm wholly playing through the UI. I had a bug today or yesterday where the sound cut out completely. It was just in Diablo, it was just an issue, and it came back after a moment. But when I lost the sound effects, the experience felt suddenly extremely empty. Hmm. You know, So it's not like I'm just playing a menu, right? Like there is something kind of visceral I'm getting from it, and I'm li- I realized I'm listening to it really closely because I actually get more information about when my abilities have affected characters or triggered than from the UI, from the sound, than I do from the visuals because the visuals are so overloaded. And... I just find it really interesting. I feel like it's it's a tuning pass from working in some ways. Um, but also, yeah, I don't want to kind of bang on it necessarily. But I did also want to, I wanted to use that as a springboard to talk about, um, and I appreciate I mentioned this game earlier, but um, how much I'm enjoying Hunt at the moment for mm-hmm. the same reasons. And I don't know if you're playing it at the moment, Marsh, because it's had a no, big update. No, I'm not. I need to get back into it because they've added a big crocodile. They have added a big crocodile. <laughs> I want to talk about big, croc- big crocodile, but... Um, so that it's a big update. Lots of lots of assorted stuff, and Hunt's been expanding rapidly for a while. I think it's had a big sale as well, so there's been a lot of new players and things. But um, yeah, so the big kind of flagship feature in Hunt is it's now got its first open world boss. So a boss that doesn't spawn in a dingy basement somewhere in one of the many compounds on the map, but a boss that can spawn in the wild. And this is uh, the crocodile, the big old crocodile, and it is a very big crocodile. And the, the way that works, because it's a bit different, is there's a new kind of clue. The, the crocodile's called Rotjaw. And Rotjaw is out in the swamp, sometimes under certain circumstances, which I'll get to. And you find at the edge of the water in various parts of the map, you will find a big old pile of poo. And if you interact with the because it's Huncho down. And if you interact with the poo, a poo tendril will emerge and just oh. point in a direction. <laughs> 
and <laughs> that, um, I don't think it's actually poo. It's a kind of uh, a kind of fetid fecal um, appendage from the beyond. Oh, I see. and it will sort of wiggle towards where the crocodile is, and then eventually you'll find like a body of water where that crocodile be. And occasionally the crocodile will just be hanging out on the bank and there's quite a lot of fun just on the basic level of like the crocodile is quite a unique fight compared to other hunt showdown. They're all very different. And I think one of the big strengths of hunt showdown is, is how strong the boss's personalities are in terms of what it takes to fight them and what they're each resistant to and so on. The crocodile, once it's knows it's been spotted or it's seen you will slip into the water. So it's only on the, if it, if you catch it napping on the bank, you can, you know, take a bomb lance to it and do quite a lot of damage. But once it's in the water, it will stay in the water and it will only surface if there is a player in the water. So there, you someone has to be bait, basically. Oh, man. And then, and then it will surge at you, has a lot of tricks and things. It's like, it's very resistant to some of the traditional kind of ways of killing a boss quietly because trying to melee the crocodile is not a great idea. It <laughs> tends to come at you real fast and... I mean, it's sometimes it's a bit limited to the horror experience in some ways because it really won't chase you onto the bank very much, um, which can sometimes make it feel like you're set relatively safe. But you're doing all of this in the open and probably quite loudly, which in Hunt means that um, you're really exposed. And so um, that's a lot of fun in and of itself and means some interesting decisions about how you build, if you're planning on hunting the crocodile and so on. Um, but the other thing is the crocodile only appears in certain circumstances. So... The crocodile only appears if it's raining or nighttime, I believe. Um, and um, there is a playlist at the moment, which it guarantees the crocodile. So it also guarantees one of those times of day. And so nighttime has always been super dark in, in Hunt Showdown and still is, but they've added, they've really improved the weather in this new update. So the rain is extraordinary. Like it's, probably some of the best rain i've seen in a game and if you have played that game you know how good sound design is like the sound of like you know torrential kind of you know bayou rain on a steel roof is kind of incredible it makes the entire map much louder um it causes for example and it starts and stops raining so it's not a consistent thing it will it will gather and start raining and then stop raining and they've got great great effects for it kind of sheeting off the edge of roofs and stuff like that it really does look amazing and it sounds great um, and it will have effects like when it starts to rain, all crows in the map will take flight, which can really confuse people because they'll just all start cawing and stuff like that. And so there's all of these different effects. But what this means effectively, and the reason I wanted to talk about it in relation to kind of Diablo, I guess, is Hunt is very much not a UI-driven game. Hunt's a very kind of felt game where you're deriving a lot of information from the game world all the time. And it's new mode its current kind of event really leans into playing in the dark or in torrential rain which is really hard to see and it works really amazingly well i think like i've had enough i've had a lot of fun with you know high visibility hunt but i've been playing quite a bit uh with friend of pod paul lately we've been running around the swamp quite a bit um uh and but also i've been playing a little bit solo um partly because the new queue is teams of three i love going in solo against a team of three it's a really compelling like it's one of the things that kind of convinced me that i wanted to kind of call out hunt it's one of the games of the last 10 years on this is like there's something you know in in its best moments it is also like one of the best stealth games you can play particularly when the visibility is dialed 
really far down. Yeah. And you are relying on every little sound and every little sniff to try and get the drop on people or make the right choices with information available to you. And, um, you know, and I've sort of um, taken advantage of a lot of the things that have been added to its arsenal in the years since it came out, things like the bow and arrow, which I love for that kind of play, like stalking around a map mm-hmm. as a sole player, trying to, you know, we've had fun doing things like finding the crocodile and then just waiting because someone else will find it. And it's a great ambush point. And like, it's sort of chaotic, open world gunfights um, where information's, uh, perfect information's very hard to come by. It's just, I don't know, it's just the best. And like, um, they've added some some nice stuff now. So like the game does have a proper score screen now. Um, so you can see who the teams were and what happened to them. And that's just a really great additional bit of storytelling. Like, because the, the the great thing about Hunt has always been the lack of information in the game, but putting a little bit of that information after the game so that you can um, figure out who it actually was that you encountered, who you killed, who killed you, and so on uh, is really welcome. So yeah, I think it's in a. I think if you if people have stepped away from Hunt, now is a very good time to go back to it because it feels like it's having a bit of a one of them good moments where all the pieces are coming together, and I I really do recommend getting murdered by a crocodile in a very wet, very dark swamp. Because crucially, I think that demonstrates like if you're going to make your game dark as shit, that's like, you know, go the whole hog, right? Go the whole croc <laughs> and and really go for it. Because Hunt, when when it is dark, you cannot see a fucking thing. <laughs> you know what I mean? Like, and it's, it's like turn the camera up on your computer and switch the lights off so you can see better dark. And I think it's a really great demonstration that that does not have to be a UX failing. You know, it's it can be really enhancing of the experience overall. Well, so much of Hunt was always about the the information you derive from you know clues in the environment about as to where other people will be, rather than you know spotting somebody and then sniping them. It's never really I know that that opportunity does arise occasionally, but it's it's not one you can rely on. Yeah, uh, and I like the, the idea that they've they've made choices which sort of maximize that aspect of the game they've also done some stuff that i think is like fairly but so i don't know if you've played it since they added the solo perks no Um, i don't think so so some of the so you have perks on your character which might mean you know wade faster in water or recover from poisoning faster or um and they all have the best art they just have the best art uh the perks but now um there's a lot of new ones and some of them you have to get in the game itself which is quite a nice addition some of them are very powerful um but a, a bunch of them now have a additional or a different effect if you are solo versus if you're in a team. And so those are quite impactful. So one of them, for example, is there's an ability that has traditionally allowed you to expend your own health to revive teammates at a distance. If you are running solo with that ability, it now allows you to res yourself if you die. And that's really big because it means that if you encounter a solo, you kind of have to burn their body on the off chance that they have that ability. And that creates a lot of different tension and stuff like that. This is all fairly like hunt showdown nitpick stuff, but like they've made the solo experience much more forgiving. But actually, that's to the benefit of it because it means that solo players are actually quite a big threat now, which I really like as a dynamic. Right? There's a there's an there's, a, there's certainly an advantage to being three. There's an advantage to being a solo, and then you know I play a lot in two, and that's its own dynamic. And yeah, it's just it's just the best. It's it's so good. A fine game. Mm-hmm. Perhaps the best of the last 10 years. Have you played anything else, Alex? 
There was another game I wanted to talk about. Um, it is a game where, despite having played uh, played it for for six hours, I feel that I've scratched its surface. Um, it is a JRPG called um, Labyrinth of Galleria, the Moon Society. Um, um, yeah, sure it is. Yeah. <laughs> and of course, it's a follow up to Labyrinth of Refrain, Coven of Dusk. Oh as you yeah, know. Mm. you can see um, how. One follows naturally on from the other. There, <laughs> it's um, uh, I I do like these games. Um, so that it's a, a an RPG in the mold of Wizardry. There's you know there's a sort of this uh, Japanese strand of RPGs which which took on the Wizardry sort of. Um, you're in the labyrinth. You're seeing things from a first person perspective, and you're moving kind of um, eye of the beholder style. Um, you know, a sort of square map unit on and turning right angles do you know what i mean do you know what i mean i've played games of that kind yeah 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 it's one of them um i really enjoyed way back um uh um, the etrian um odyssey games Mm. um which were for nintendo ds which were really cool because they um, used the touch screen on the ds so that you could um draw the map as you go along it's a big part of the game really felt you you felt like a dungeon delver when you did when you played it, um, which I really enjoyed. Um, uh, this game auto maps, um, and it like it's one of those Japanese RPGs where it's such an old genre, like fully plumbed genre, or like almost fully plumbed genre. So they just slap on so many different systems and stuff uh, on the top. And so playing it is a matter of kind of wondering what the fuck this term is. <laughs> what does it mean? And what? how do you play with it? And what does it do? Um, uh, but, you know, I, I do find, I have found that quite fun, sort of. Um, but what's really interesting about it is that um, it really fucks around with the tenets of it, where uh, quite early on you get this um, ability just to break through walls <laughs> for little cost, like it costs a certain kind of a mana. It's called mana and you pick up mana from, from fighting enemies and stuff. Mana's pretty easy to get by, which means you could just bust through walls. And what seems a fairly straightforward uh, dungeon level, um, suddenly you realize that, that, that when you were in that sort of space and you could see, because it's drawn in 3D and you could see across the way like a large kind of void area and there was something in the distance, there will probably be a way to get to it if you can just bust through the right walls and you'll find these secret passages and that kind of thing. And um, it really playfully kind of busts open a genre which actually, you know, uh, you know that wizardry formula put you in quite um, static environments and then this makes them very dynamic and it means that you you come up with theories like maybe I can get to that bit if I can just smash my way through this bit. Um, on top of that, uh, you have this little kind of little lantern guy called Fa- Fancy or Fassy, I don't know, weird name. Um, it's a little sort of ghostly sort of lantern-y little fella. Uh which can take on all these like lots of different abilities, which basically almost UI um, UI sort of um, changes or adaptations or uh, um, enhancements. Um, so uh, one of them you can pay for in a shop um, means that when you try to go forward, uh, with into, which would make a forward move into a void 
um, you know, accidentally that would have sent you falling and possibly into the next floor, which does you huge amounts of damage and also means that you're on a floor where there are loads of loads of very high, much higher level enemies and it's very dangerous and you'll get fucked if you try to go anywhere. Um, and you, you, if you buy this ability, it'll stop you from falling. So little things like that, which I've always liked games, which kind of, which kind of, I don't know, they, they're aware of their gameness and they make part of the game the the UI. <laughs> this I don't know. There's something quite kind of mm. pleasing about that, um, and it, you know, and it also allows you to sort of feel like, well, I've learned the penalty to falling down something, and now I've got the thing which stops me from doing it, and th- that's quite a nice little closed loop of a game experience, which I. It's just strangely fulfilling, you know, despite the fact that you could just not have let anyone fall into voids and that would be fine. But, um, and there are things like sort of, um, you know, enemy sensors, uh, or a thing that tells you the kind of enemy that's coming towards you, what general level it is, and lots of little kind of quality of life things that it sort of slowly allows you to, um, uh, buy over time. I've only played six hours of it and I have really done very little, um, um, in it so far, but I found it really fun. Um, and if you're into that kind of game, it's a really solid one. The storyline is very, uh, it's like the name. I mean, (laughs) (laughs) there are those who seem to enjoy it, but it's a lot of words and kind of terrible, horrible kind of, you know, English voice acting. I turned it to Japanese just to, just to avoid the kind of yowling, uh vo but um or just have it on just put it on silent or something um and it's really good on a steam deck so yeah a little a little a little frippery good for Mm. a holiday perhaps do you think i mean you've played it for six hours do you estimate that you'll stay with it for the many hour duration that remains let us face uh reality let's face my own soul no no i will not (laughs) 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 <laughs> but i do want to play more and there's that <laughs> it's all we can ask it's all we can ask it's, for but, oh, yeah well you know something else will come along won't it fucking games always does always something does something else hmm talking of uh games that are going to come along <laughs> 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 Would you like to end this podcast in the most bottomful way possible? I.e. Yeah. with a quiz. Oh <gasps> fuck yes. That is the mo- the most bottomful. Happy birthday. Bottomful quiz. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, he found the button. Uh, uh, <laughs> so this is um this is a very bad quiz. Uh, yeah. <laughs> which is the exact kind that I specialize in. Um you're going to guess from the episode title I'm going to give you what game the title refers to. Ooh. Ooh. <laughs> Ooh. This, is, um, this is dangerously close to 10-year anniversary themed yeah, content, is, Marsh. Content, yeah. <laughs> Look at you sneaking a little bit of effort in at the end, you big it might be fucking good, isn't he? He is. The, the odds are stacked against Alex here because he wasn't part of the podcast for several of these. Yeah. Sorry about that. But I don't think it helps because none of the podcast titles make any sense. Anyway. Are you going to give an idea of uh, the time or the sort of episode number or year? I'll give you an idea. of. I'll I'll read out the full title, including the episode number. Okay. Um, Are we doing this one at a time or are we buzzing in or how is this working? (laughs) Well, it's probably not going to work, isn't it? Um, I think think you should uh, announce your intention to answer 
and okay. whoever gets there first gets all right first i'll just one. make it a stressed sound all right you could denounce yourself by saying chris thurston and then you're the university you tend to see oh, fuck off <laughs> <laughs> Uh, okay, don't do that. Make some kind of suitable honking sound, and yeah. I will acknowledge one of you as the victor. And uh, because this is basically impossible, I will give you uh, a half pity point if you're close, if you're like okay. within the genre, let's say. Sure. So, you ready for question one? Yeah. <laughs> Episode 85. Forget it, Jake. It's Poo Town. <laughs> Ah, uh, I'm going to guess, fuck it, Jurassic World Evolution. Uh, do I throw it over to Alex? I don't know. What yeah, do? give him a go. Give him a So we're looking at about 2000, late 2014. What came out then? Call of Duty, Black Ops 2 or 3 or 4 or 5. Oh, <laughs> sorry, I announced my intention to answer Black Ops. <laughs> I never announced my intention, actually, oh. shit. This is just like Jeopardy. This is how they do it. This is how the pros do it. Neither of you are anywhere near close, really. Cities skylines. Of course. Oh, of course. I had a management game. All right. That you, is... get a, you get a half a point. Yeah. And that is Blue Town, like it's cities. There we go. Yeah. Yeah. It had a town in it. Yeah. It, was, it wasn't that cryptic in a weird way. <laughs> <laughs> and it was 2000. Yeah. Okay. Good. 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 Question two. Episode 125. An udder full of dollars and a will to kill. Udder full of dollars and a will to kill. Hey, man. I, I, I intentioned... Uh, <laughs> <laughs> hey, man. Um, Sonic Racing. <laughs> Alex was fully correct. Yeah. Wow. <laughs> I mean, will to kill is right there. Like, yeah. it's, you know. Yeah. yeah. yeah that's a good All right. Game. That's good. Yeah. Episode 322, I've seen a raccoon man, so I've had a good time tonight. Oh, <laughs> <laughs> um, we've had fun, haven't we? Um, oh, uh, uh, announcing um, the, the one with the little raccoon guy in it. Oh, that's a cat. I'm thinking of the, the story game with the cat in the old industrial failed sit town in America. I have no idea what that game is. A short hike. <laughs> <laughs> Crucible. Uh, which was Amazon's failed online shooter. It's oh, totally shit. Forgot that totally forgot. Oh, fuck, yeah. Like, oh, yeah, did he have... A, was his character... Yeah, the little raccoon, raccoon. man. Mm, right. Void. Nil point. Yeah. Episode 242. I am the string man with the staring eyes. <laughs> <laughs> These all ring a bell because I think I was present Unravel. for all of them. Unravel. Yeah, this, Alex got it. Oh, fuck, yeah. I'm getting absolutely yeah. rinsed here. It's okay. There's, 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 unfortunately, there's nine of these for some reason. <laughs> there would have been ten, but I actually couldn't. I spent so long trying to find. You couldn't out. find ten episodes. <laughs> no, I, I could find some sort of actual sort of uh, link between the title and the game. I know, and I didn't want to listen to full episodes, so I was skipping through them trying to find sure. anything that might. I appreciate to you almost putting the effort into this. <laughs> <laughs> Episode 53, Sweet Drifts Solve Murders. Oh, I'm going to guess... This feels like... I've got a feeling, because I've, I've probably edited a bunch of these, and I've just got this feeling that this would be one of those, like, composite titles, maybe? This is a direct quote from the episode. Mm. Mm. Need for Speed. 
I'll go for uh, 123, you say? 53. 53, that's the opposite of what I said. Um, Burnout Paradise. It was The Crew. So you were both sure. in the same... Okay. okay. One point, half point each. Half point each, yeah. Episode 381, Weird Acid from My Horn Sphincter. Uh, spite? Scorn. What was the what was the episode name again? What's the uh, fuck's that again? game called? Three hundred eighty-one. Weird acid from a horn sphincter. You literally said this, Alex. <laughs> Jesus. Well, actually, you didn't. I think it's an indirect quote. Graham was a little bit more creative when he came up with coming up with this uh, title. You did uh, <laughs> did use some of these words. <laughs> oh dear. Um, spore. You've already guessed, Chris. You, you <laughs> I'm just guessing <laughs> words beginning with S that sound kind of similar to each other. So it's a fairly recent game where you probably sort of, sort of something comes out of something on your head, protuberance on your head. I, I, I don't know. I don't know. It was Warhammer 40k, colon, Battle Sector. One of the most immemorable game names. Wow. Oh, it would be Tyranids. Okay. Yeah, that makes sense. Hmm. Huh. Hmm. Episode 300, Frightened of the Urtine. Uh, <laughs> uh, I want to answer it's Disco Elysium. Oh, that's good. Yeah. Boom. Yeah, he's good. got it. He's got it. Episode 326, The Noble Truth of Nature's Chainsaw. <laughs> uh, Valheim. That's a good guess. Uh. Uh, I mean, Nature's Chainsaw. What is Nature's Chainsaw? A beaver? Um... <laughs> <laughs> Fucking um, Crash Bandicoot. <laughs> um, I'm going to give you a half a point just to make make it level. Oh. <laughs> it was Man Eater. Oh yeah, name about the shark, which oh, is yeah. a bit like a Bandicoot if you think about it. Yeah, it's, I, it's, I, yeah. <laughs> I think that this is a fix, but fine. Well, uh, it means there's all to play for in the final question. <laughs> oh, oh. <laughs> Episode 391. You can't jostle the ghost clump. <laughs> <laughs> oh, uh, ooh. <laughs> ooh. <laughs> is, it, is it the Tokyo game with the ghosts in it? With ghost ones. Seems Ghostwire. almost too obvious. Mm. Is it that re-released like Atlas game where you are? Is that Ghostwire Tokyo that I'm thinking of? No, I don't think it is. Is it the one where you take pictures in ghost yeah. houses? Yeah, no, no, it's different. Oh, what was it called? No, I can't remember. Oh, what was the fuck? What was that called? Scary ghost photo. Scary mm. go- maybe ghost trick. No, mm, that was one too of obvious. Games. Oh, anyway, it's not, would... it's not that. <laughs> okay, fine. Uh, it was Vampire Survivors. Oh. Mm. But the result mm. of this pointless and tiring activity <laughs> is that you both drew. Yay! Uh, hey, thanks for making that happen, Marsh. <laughs> what content? What yeah, content? Ten years. Now that's podcasting. Great. Well, that's all of the amount of this we can justify. If actually that said, we we did have a thought, um, but uh, we'll see if there's any takers on this because Lord knows if anyone's listening at this point, we'll find out. Um, but we did think that you know, given that it's been ten years and and it's been a while since we've answered any questions, we might you know might suggest that if people would like us to 
resurrect questions from questions for one night only, perhaps in the coming weeks, um, or whether we hit whenever we hit a critical mass. Kind of willing to do that. So that sounds fun. So um, I'll say a thing I haven't said for a while, which is that if you would like to get in touch, send us a question for a future episode, why not do so? You can tweet us at Crate and Crowbar, uh, leave a question on Discord somewhere, I guess, if you like, or email us at questions in crateandcrowbar.com. The reason I hesitate saying that is because I truly haven't checked to make sure that inbox still works. So we're just going to go on this journey together and see if any content falls out, because Lord knows that's just how this works. Um, in the meantime, you can find uh, our website, createandcrowbar.com, which has a link to our Discord server, as well as many more episodes just like this one, many of them better. Uh, you can find said episodes also on youtube.com, which includes things like our um, Harford Bloodborne playthrough from many years ago now, but might be worth revisiting if this week's talk of Yarnum has got you yearning for that cephalopod. I don't know what the fuck I'm talking about at this point. Yearning for Yarnum. Yearning for Yarnum. It was right there, but I felt it was too obvious, so I didn't go mm. for it. But thank you for biting. So I was just dang dangling the low-hanging fruit, and you gave it a big old... I always pluck it. You always pluck it. He always toots it. He always plucks it. That's an Alex Wiltshire promise, and it's why we miss him so terribly. Um, uh, what else have I forgotten? Oh, yeah, Patreon. We've got one of those. Um, thank you to everybody who supports the podcast on Patreon. You can find out more about that at patreon.com forward slash crate and crowbar. Um, in the meantime, I've been Chris Thurston, and I can't believe we've been doing this for 10 years. That's kind of nuts if you think about it too much, which I refuse to do. Good night. I've been Marsh Davis, and I've felt every single minute that has elapsed of these 10 years, and then some. Fantastic. And I'm Alex Wiltshire. I've experienced none of the minutes in all that time. Deathless, whispering revenant that he is. We do have to say it, don't we? For all time's sake. The thing. <sighs> I suppose. <laughs> Thanks for listening, everybody. Ten years since you said that wrong for the first time, Mark. <laughs> I know. Ten years. Oh, let it echo down the generations like, you know, the Iliad. This feels like karmic revenge, incidentally, for the amount of times our community over the years had has claimed that it's been ten years between episodes. <laughs> that is now finally true of two episodes. <laughs> the first one and this one. You're welcome.